Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Cool. And there's Jerry over there. Cool. That was not Jerry. Now, uh, and this is Stuff You Should Know. <laughs> I love that we have a new trend here of starting our animal-centric podcast with impressions of that animal. Because you did your, uh, what I thought was a dolphin, but what was a bat. <laughs> and I just did a pigeon, which... Um, that was a pretty good pigeon. Well, come on. Coo. Does, again, you just blew me away with your pigeon. Or a New York pigeon. Coo. <laughs> I'm cooing here. <laughs> yeah, I'm cooing here. How's it going? I feel ashamed all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, we've gotten a lot of requests for um, messenger pigeons. Yeah, we have. Over the years. And you said, I'm going to heed the call and put together a nice little uh, conglomerate of articles yeah. on it. And I thought it was super interesting and a, a bit confusing in terminology because as we will soon divulge, or I guess we're about to, yeah, like messenger pigeons, homing pigeons. Different. Well, no, not really. Oh, yeah, the same? <laughs> like a lot of it is just a oh, different right, name you're right. for the I'm same sorry. thing. For those are, you chose the two that are the same. Right. All the others are different. <laughs> yeah. Homing pigeons and, and passenger pigeons, different. Different. Um, uh, Carrier pigeons. Different than messenger pigeons, which is very confusing. It's all just confusing. Well, it's clear through... The crud and the mire and the muck and get to the differences between types of pigeons. Because most people do, when you think of a carrier pigeon, Chuck, you're probably lumping together a bunch of different pigeons into the same category. Yeah. And you would be right in a certain way in that most of the pigeons that we consider carrier pigeons um, are descended from rock pigeons. Yeah, we don't want to be pigeon lumpers. No, all pigeons are different <laughs> and beautiful in their own way. That's right. Rock pigeons originally uh, named so from the rock dove, I believe, which uh, they inhabited mountains and sea cliffs. And I think that's why they were called rock. Sure. Pretty that, easy. Or they love poison. <laughs> That'd be glam rock pigeons. Hair rock. Hair rock pigeons. Glam rock. No, not quite as glam same rock's as like glam rock. Glary, Gary Glitter. Yeah, and I think a little older, like Glamrock to me was 70s. Hair Rock was the 80s. Right. Kind of bastardization of Glamrock. Yes. Not nearly as good as like the New York Dolls, let's say. Sure, right. You know? Who were way better than Gary Glitter, as it turns out, in the end. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You forgot about that. Yeah. All right. Back to pigeons. We haven't even started yet. No. <laughs> they were all descended from rock pigeons. Kind of like, do you remember our Thoroughbred Horse art, um, episode? How Can I Forget? Love that one. Yeah. I, I, I didn't like it that much because I was it was dense for me. There's a lot of information there. Yeah. The, the difference between Thoroughbred Horses and pigeons is that there's not that much information on pigeon yeah. lineages. Yeah, that's true. Despite the fact that some people show them, right? And this is where we finally arrive at carrier pigeons. That's right. They are, as this article points out, fancy pigeons, yeah. <laughs> and they're bred to to, to show. They're ornamental um, in very weird ways. Yeah, they have what's uh, on their nose. If you look up a true carrier pigeon, you're going to see a lot of pictures of just homing pigeons. Uh-huh. But look until you find one that looks like it has 
a, a rotten walnut on its nose. It looks like it's pecked into a teratoma and it's come out and just stuck <laughs> around the bird's beak. Yeah, that's called a uh, a waddle sir. Waddle two two words. Waddle dash sir C E R E. Right. And um, it is a fleshy thing on the bill, and they do say it resembles the texture uh, of a walnut. And, and that's what it starts out as. Uh, they get big and even more gross looking. Yeah, and it's at the top of the bill, which is when you see one uh, 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 carrier pigeon with just one of these wattles on top of its beak, you're like, that's a little weird looking. But I've seen birds with that little growth right there before. Sure. As they mature, these wattles start popping up all around their beak, and it's it's just grody. Like they have them beneath around the sides. It's, it's gross. It's like a bird only a passenger. A- passenger lover fancier would love like they love these things but most people when they see them are like "Ooh, man look at that right yeah and if you're showing carrier pigeons like uh, the pigeons like great amazing waddle is is something to be shown off and displayed it's like a a point of pride among the showers or not me buddy fancier i say cover that thing up people by the (laughs) way who like (laughs) just kidding who like uh pigeons and are into showing and raising and and Using pigeons for fun um, are called pigeon fanciers, by the way. Yeah, I just said that. Oh, you did? Yeah, but I didn't explain it. I just slipped it in. Oh, okay. Well, people, I wanted to explain it. Yeah, people are probably like, why did Chuck just say fancier? <laughs> Who does he think he is? What, does he think he's the king of England? <laughs> no, but the carrier pigeon is the king of pigeons, according to fanciers. That was not bad. Uh, pigeons were uh, imported to the U.S. from Europe in 1860, and by 1872... The first racing clubs were formed. Apparently, Philadelphia has, or probably still do, or had the largest concentration of fanciers in the late 1800s. And um, racing pigeons is a really big d- deal still. Yeah. When the reason you can race pigeons is that rock pigeon descendants, whether they be carrier, although I don't think, I think carrier is the least strong of all of them, but especially homing and messenger pigeons. They are really fast. Yes. And they are capable of flying their way, their way over very long distances. That's right. And they, uh, find their way home, uh, because they return, uh, in general to their nests to mate. So this is why they return home. We'll get to how in a bit, uh, later, but. Like how to train them to do that? Well, how to train them and just how, you know, science has figured out that they do this. Yeah. This is pretty remarkable. Um, so they fly around 40 miles per hour on average, but can reach as high as 60. Mm-hmm. And apparently 100 to 300 miles is just a walk in the park for these guys. Oh, yeah. And gals. Yeah. Um, they have a record. I don't know if it's a documented record, but 1986, they verified that a homing pigeon named Charlie flew 4,550 miles from the UK to Brazil. And he wasn't even supposed to. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, apparently he was in a race, and um, I guess his nest was in Brazil originally, and he figured it out and made his way there to Brazil, even though he was in a local race at the time in England. Isn't that nuts? It's pretty nuts. So uh, apparently the racing pigeons, and we could do, I mean, there, there's so much on racing pigeons that we're not even going to get to, mm-hmm. aside from mentioning it, but the racing homer is the specific type of pigeon that is bred to race because... The Homer is the fastest, which is ironic if you're a Simpsons fan. Oh, yeah. Because Homer's not a fast guy. Yeah. You know? No, he's really not. So homing pigeons uh, are are bred specifically to 
find their way home. I mean, they're good at it anyway, like right. you said. Yeah. But they selectively breed these things if you're going to be a fancier right. uh, to do so. And when you're when you're racing a homing pigeon or something like that, basically what you're doing is you're taking it to a place away from its home. Yeah. You smack it on the head. <laughs> right. <laughs> With a little tiny hammer. Uh-huh. Say, wake up. Yeah. And uh, no, don't do that no. to a pigeon if you ever. <laughs> Just kidding. Don't do that. Uh, and then you release it, and it will find its way back home. And uh, you release it at the same time as some other ones. And whichever one finds its way home first is the winner. That's racing pigeons. But as you said, homing pigeons are really good at finding their way home naturally. Yes. But over time, they've been selectively bred by humans to be the best of the best at this. Right. Like compared to their wild ancestors, they make them look like utter poop. Yeah, just like your basic rock pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about the different theories on how they find their way home. Um, th- there's some new findings, and what they generally think now is it could be a combination of these things. Yeah, or like, it seems like an everybody wins hypothesis. Yeah, basically. So um, the sun uh, could be one way that they find their direction, and just a general north, south, east, west sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's cloudy, uh, the Earth's magnetic field, uh, there's basically two different things going at work here. There's a compass, right. and then there's the map. And right. the compass is just your, sort of like just us. It's a general header, and the map is actually like, where am I now, and where do I need to be? Yeah. Like, where- I'm back in New York. I'm on 57th Street, mm-hmm. and I need to get down to the Lower East Side. Yeah. But the compass part is like, so that I'm right now facing north. Sure. Which means I need to turn around a little bit and go until I'm facing east. That's right. And using my map, I have figured this out. Yeah, this one study, I didn't follow up on it, the one from Oxford that said they actually follow established roads at some point. Mm-hmm. Do you know, did you look into that anymore? No, I didn't see that. I wonder if that was just like a speculation that's been overturned or if they'd really do follow like I-20. So uh, the fact that I that we didn't run into that anywhere else yeah. makes me think like it's probably been abandoned yeah it seems from what i can understand the the two main competing long-standing competing explanations were like you say they're following magnetic lines uh-huh. um in the earth's magnetosphere yeah uh or they're following smells tiny odor molecules that they use to basically as a trail of breadcrumbs to lead them back toward their roost yeah their nest right um and for a long time this was it was debated whether this was the case or not. Um, the fact that they have such good compasses really lends a lot of credibility to the idea that they can follow magnetic lines yeah. and use those to, to um, orient themselves. And there's actually this anecdote from the early 80s that really lends a lot of support to the magnetic um, theory. Yeah. And that is there was this one pigeon that was caught around a lake in Yellowstone. Oh, right. And by caught, I mean, like, it was seen for, I think, a few weeks, like, just flying in circles around this lake. Yeah, which is not what a homing pigeon is supposed to do. No, they fly straight and purposeful toward home. Sure. Wherever they are. Yeah. Um, so this this uh, naturalist, apparently, where did you find this article? Ooh, I'm not sure which one this was in. Uh Audubon Society was one, and uh, well, well, I mean, we've got them all posted on our website, right? Yeah. Okay. So, um, one, this naturalist who wrote this article that we're talking about um, got a hold of this pigeon, and he took it and cared for it, and took it away from the lake and uh, released it, and the thing flew due east, and it was a North Carolina pigeon, and it was out in Yellowstone. So he said, "You know what? 
this lake area has a really weird magnetic field. It's known for making compasses go haywire. Right. So this lends a pretty decent amount of support to the magnetic line theory. Yeah, agreed. But it's been overturned recently, or at least diminished as far as um, the smell theory, right? Well, I don't know about overturned. I think, again, it's like everyone wins. I think from what I ended up with was that they use all of these things when it's most uh, beneficial. Okay. Like they'll use one if it's like if the magnetic field is not as strong, then uh-huh. they'll go to one of their other tried and true methods. Like smell. Yeah, smell was another one. And then recently, um, sound, uh, specifically infrasound, which are sound waves, uh, super low frequency that we can't hear them. Uh, there's a geophysicist named John Hagstrom that cooked up this idea uh, and published it in the Journal of Experimental Biology. And he said basically he thinks that they hear their way home, uh, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and apparently this um, that pigeon back in the early 80s that was around Yellowstone, that lake in Yellowstone that was having a hard time, um, that phenomenon is called a release site bias. Yeah. In some places in the world, if you release a homing pigeon, they're going to have a hard time finding their way home or else they're going to end up getting stuck flying around in circles. And it's generally unexplained. So it's led to this whole subfield of study of homing pigeon maps and how they do this stuff. And um, this subsonic sound theory basically says that they follow basically sound maps. Yeah, sort of like echolocation is what it sounded like to me with bats. Yeah, but they're just hearing. They're not like creating right. a sound and, and listening for the echo. They're just listening out for the sound. Yeah. But they're almost listening out for sound in much the same way that they would follow, say, odorant molecules, like a trail of breadcrumbs. Right. They're listening for familiar subsonic sounds. Yeah, as low as 0.05 hertz. Uh, and like you said, they basically create a, a sound map, and um, he basically compared it to the same thing that we see when we look out with our eyeballs at something. Yeah. But they, they can hear it. Right. So they would like see their home, the way we see our home when we're driving like up to it. Yeah. They hear their home and they know which way to go toward it. Yeah. Yeah. If you could see what I hear. You ever seen that movie? No. <laughs> Is that a Lifetime movie? It could have been if there was Lifetime back then. It was an 80s movie. It was the, the, the guy that played the Beastmaster. Uh-huh. He played the, a very famous uh, blind man uh-huh. who was a piano player and it was called if you could see what i hear so i think blind people use sound in similar ways was it blind tom the uh the savant was he no. a savant he no i can't remember uh he's sort of like a p- piano player playboy type huh i just remember seeing it on cable when i was a kid and uh I think Mark Singer was the guy, yeah. But I can't remember the real guy, but he was a real guy. Did you see or hear about the Lifetime movie that um, Kristen Wiig and Will Ferrell made? Oh, yeah. And no one can figure out if it was like a piece of comedic genius or else if they were like serious or what? Well, no, they figured it out. I mean, they basically went to make the movie and just said, let's just do this as straight up as we can. But because it's us, it'll just have that edge that, you know... Like, Will Ferrell being serious is one of the funniest things in the world. So it was comedic genius. Well, yeah, because it's them. Okay. But they weren't like, let's try and make this funny. They just said, let's do this as straight as possible. Okay. I didn't know if, like, both of them happened to have, like, a family member who needed surgery at the same time. <laughs> so they, like, uh, signed on to this project yeah. or what? It's pretty weird. Have you seen it? Yeah, oh, yeah. I saw it. And it is it is tough because they are hysterical, but it's so straight. It's like, 
I don't know how to register this. It says like like the room or something like that. Well, well, that was just a bad movie that ended up being hysterical. <laughs> but this isn't much the same. I got to see this. What the room or the- no the other one? No, you got to see them both. What the- I've seen the room. Oh, okay. What's the uh, what's the Lifetime movie one called? I can't remember. I guess if you just search Will Ferrell. Yeah. Lifetime movie, it'll come up. Right? He does a lot of weird things. He did that Spanish language movie, and he did that uh, the miniseries. Uh, he, he he takes chances. Good for him. He's in a position to do so. Uh, so I, I feel like this is a pretty good time to take a break, <laughs> don't you? Yes, and regather ourselves. Yes, let's do that starting now. All right, so we covered basically how they uh, find their way home and the competing theories, and I think they all just live together in one big happy family because they haven't disproven Oh, the anything. theories, yeah. not the pigeons. Yeah, the pigeons do too. They like each <laughs> other. But I don't, I don't think anyone has disproven anything. So at this point, I think they're taking all comers as right. far as those theories go. Yeah, so – and this is um, not specific to – is it specific to homing pigeons? Although it would include messenger pigeons, wouldn't it? Because and carrier pigeons, does it? But not passenger pigeons. Okay, so because uh, they're all dead. The the only difference between a messenger pigeon and a homing pigeon mm-hmm. is that um, a messenger pigeon has uh, something either a tube on its leg or a little backpack that yeah. contains a message. I think the backpack is the new method. Yeah, and they used to do the tube on the leg. I think the backpack is way cuter. Yeah, it's adorable. A little um, tiny backpack? Are you kidding? What I can't figure out is the difference between a messenger pigeon and a carrier pigeon. Okay, so here's the, a carrier pigeon is not bred for flying. It's not bred for its homing abilities. It's not bred to race. Okay, it's not bred to scent. It's basically. Um, the Pekingese of pigeons. Okay, no, no, I got it, I got it. I'm just picturing them in my head. Gotcha. So carrier is confusing me because they're not they're not actually carrying anything. No, that is why it's so confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, of all of them, they should not have the word carrier attached. It should be like virtually useless pigeon with the horrible <laughs> waddle on its beak. Right. That's and the new name for carrier pigeon. Tiny pigeon hammer to. Talk them on the head. <laughs> no, that's homing pigeons. All right. Uh, so carrier pigeons are are for show. Gotcha. They're the best in show of pigeons. So the homing pigeon is the one who carries a message. Uh, generally, it's written on little tiny pieces of thin. That's the messenger pigeon, which yes. is a homing pigeon that is carrying a message. Exactly. Yeah. That's where we are. Okay. But I mean, it can get confusing. I'm sorry to correct you. I don't mean to be pedantic. No, I think I just said uh, messenger pigeon, didn't I? I don't remember. Okay. Let's rewind and listen. At any rate, <laughs> the messenger pigeon is a homing pigeon that carries a message. Right. And they have been around for a long time. Uh, Egypt, the Phoenicians, Romans. Uh, Noah. Yeah. Noah in the in the Bible. Yeah. He was the first dude. Supposedly. Russell Crowe. I thought those were doves, but. Uh, Apparently, I ran across a, a comment on it that dove and pigeon were interchangeable back then. Oh, really? Back in old-timey Aramaic days. All right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Apparently, in ancient uh, Rome, when they had chariot races, 
that not just like a chariot race in a stadium, but like a long chariot race mm-hmm. over distance, mm-hmm. they would send um, the passenger. I'm sorry. Oh man, here we go. The messenger pigeons back <laughs> with the news of who won. Yeah, right. So they're like attached, you know, Brutus won this one. Go tell them, everybody. Yeah. And I guess an hour later they would get there and everyone would be too drunk to realize that they cared. Yeah. <laughs> At that point. Uh, Genghis Khan used them. He had like a whole system set up. Oh, yeah. We've never really talked about him, have we? Yeah, we have. Did we do an episode on that? Yeah. We did. Yeah. About whether or not he killed uh, like a million people or something in one I can't hour. find that episode anywhere. Oh, I th- I'm pretty sure we covered it. I felt like we did, too. Jerry's nodding yes. Or either she's falling asleep and then waking up <laughs> over and over <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Genghis Khan had a whole system across uh-huh. Asia and Europe, yeah. like a relay system. Right. Pretty impressive. What else? Uh, Germans used them, uh, actually attached little cameras to their bellies. Oh, that was World War One. Yeah. So the, the modern use of messenger pigeons uh, in warfare st- was actually, it seems to be started by the French. Yeah, and went all the way up through the Vietnam War. Yeah. So there is a, like, the French love using messenger pigeons in a warlike setting, right? Yes. Um, and there was the, the siege of Paris. The Prussians were attacking Paris. And Paris was finally saved. There were reinforcements thanks to a group of carrier pigeons, or messenger pigeons, um, who got word that Paris was being, was under siege and, uh, they needed help. And help arrived. And Paris was saved, as I've said a few times. That's right. The Prussians were defeated, and the pigeon was so beloved as a result that the same guy who um, created the Statue of Liberty also created a tribute to pigeons that was that stood in Paris up until World War, World War II yeah. when they melted it down. Because they needed the metal? I think so. Oh, really? So by the time World War I rolled around, pigeons were... Very much established as a very useful means of communication when all else failed um, in war. Yeah, apparently they're so fast that they're hard to shoot down. Yeah. Uh, and they get where they want to go. Uh, in the case in France, and uh, how do you pronounce it? M-A-R-N-E. Is it Marne? The Marne. The Marne? The Battle of the Marne. Uh, there were 72 pigeon lofts, and as they advanced forward, they took the lofts with them. A lot of the pigeons that were out carrying messages... Uh, we're out when they moved the lofts. We're out when they moved the lofts, and we're still able to find their lofts blind, not knowing where these lofts ended up. Amazing! Go pigeons! <laughs> uh, there was uh, there were laws passed during wartime. Uh-huh. Uh, this one, Regulation 21A, shooting homing pigeons. Killing, wounding, or molesting, gross, homing pigeons is punishable uh, on the defense of the realm regulations by six months imprisonment or a 100-pound fine. That's... That's just a fine. In France, you could be executed for impeding uh, a messenger pigeon. A wartime pigeon? Yep. Uh, and there were also rewards offered, five-pound rewards uh, for any, you know, if you turn in your, your friend mm-hmm. for shooting a homing pigeon, yeah. you get five pounds. Five pounds. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a big big deal. They were uh, dogs, apparently, too, and pigeons were used heavily in wartime to carry messages, like very reliably. Yeah. Um, should we tell the story of Cher Ami? How can we not? I don't see how we could. Yeah. So in World should War One, Should we auto-tune it because it's Cher? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in World War I, uh, you mentioned that the Germans were using um, uh, 
passenger or messenger pigeons. Yes. With cameras strapped to their belly for aerial reconnaissance, right? Yeah, it's like the bats with the bombs. Kind of. But this is more photography rather than incendiary <laughs> destruction. Yes. Um, but the French were using this for um, messages, for getting them from the front, you know, to behind the lines. Back to HQ. Right. Yeah. And so were the Americans, too. Apparently, the the French used like 30,000 of them in World War One. Americans had something like 600. But one really came through for a New York company at the uh, Battle of the Argonne. It was October 1918, toward the end of the war, and they were trapped by the Germans. So this this uh, pigeon named Cherami, uh was released by, I think it was New York Company, right? Which was surrounded in a little low-lying, I don't even think you can call it a valley. I think the, the author of this New York Times article that we're getting this from called it like a depression in the ground. Yeah. And there's a few hundred men who were there. It started out as 500 um, and they were starting to get whittled down because they were surrounded by Germans. Yeah. Even worse than that, the American um, reinforcements had no idea where this this New York company was. Yeah. And they were they were shelling them too. Yeah. Because they thought that they were shelling the Germans that were surrounding New York Company. They had no idea they were shelling New York Company as well. So apparently they released a lot of pigeons, and a lot of pigeons got shot, which means that there were some German sharpshooters there. They yeah. were really good because it is tough, like you said, to shoot down a homing pigeon because they are fast. Or they were just shooting a lot of bullets into the air. Yes. You know? So they released one, um, one of their last ones, Cherami. And Cherami, um, f- flew and flew and took off and got hit at least once. Yeah. Had a quarter size hole in his breast and it shot his leg off. Shot the leg that had the tube with the message saying where this New York company was attached to that leg. It got shot off, but it also got lodged into the hole in Jeremy's chest. Yeah. And the bird flew back to its roost like that. Yeah. Gave the coordinates. Uh, I like to think that he chirped them out even <laughs> and said, forget the message. <laughs> well, he was saluting. With Follow me. Words. Yeah. <laughs> I believe in love. Uh, and 194 men uh, were saved, and Cherami was awarded the Croix de Guerre with palm. Yeah, with palm. I didn't even know. Yeah, you don't want it without palm. No way. That's, that's half the award. <laughs> uh, sadly, died in 1919 from the wounds. But man, what a great story! Yeah, now he's on display. I'm not sure exactly where, but um, you can find pictures of him uh, stuffed with just one leg. And the other leg, with the tube still attached, has been preserved as well. Really? Mm-hmm. That's probably at the Pigeon uh, War Museum. Probably. In uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And Chuck, I, I have to say, um, I read this one article, too, about, it was called Hawks and Doves, and it was about the irony of using rock pigeons, which are um, related to doves in some ways, or used to be called doves, uh, as uh, like a wartime symbol. Oh, really? Because mm-hmm, they're very peaceful birds. Interesting. It's on our. It's on the the uh, page for this episode. Well, I think it's time for another little respite, uh, and then we'll come back and talk about the very sad story of the passenger pigeon. Right after this. All 
right, Josh. We've talked about rock pigeons, which include homing pigeons, carrier pigeons, mm-hmm. messenger pigeons. Same thing as a homing pigeon. But there is something called a passenger pigeon, which is not any of those things. No. And it is not a thing anymore. No, it used to be. Sadly. I mean, it's a thing as far as pest tense goes. Yes. But there used to be a ton of them. They're a native North American bird. They're about one and a half times the size of a morning dove. Yep. They looked a lot like them. And uh, like I said, they were all over. Some say they made up 40% of the North American bird population. (laughs) 40%. Yeah, that's... That's a lot. And they like to hang out together. They have uh, the largest documented flock um, on record in Wisconsin in 1871. They estimated 136 million breeding passenger pigeons over 850 square miles of forest. Yeah, that was Wisconsin. There was supposedly another flock in 1860 that reached 3.7 billion. Flying over Ontario. They supposedly blacked out the sky. Yeah, and these are credible witnesses who are writing about these things back in the early 19th century, like John James Audubon, who, number one, knew his birds. A little bit. Knew what he was talking about. Yeah. And uh, was a credible scientist. And he wrote about a ride from, I think, uh, Lexington to um, Louisville. In Kentucky. Yeah. In 1813. And he talked about how along the way the sun was blotted out and the sky from horizon to horizon was filled with um, passenger pigeons. Yeah, he was, it was either that or the opium. And this this, <laughs> this wasn't like a, a thing where it just happened and, you know, they flew overhead and that was amazing. This went on for the whole three-day journey from Lexington to Louisville. Yeah. The whole three days, the sun was blotted out by one single flock of passenger pigeons flying overhead. The same flock. Amazing. Like, you just don't see that these days. Well, no, and you definitely don't see that these days because, like we said, they are completely extinct at this point. And uh, you sent along a great article called uh, 100 Years After Her Death, Martha, the Last Passenger Pigeon, Mm -hmm. still resonates. And what happened was uh, a couple of things. One... Um, they were hunted relentlessly uh, for massive amounts of food. Oh, yeah. When those flocks would fly overhead, you you could just close your eyes and start shooting up in the air, and all tons of passenger pigeons are going to fall around you. Yes. Like, if you hunt something that big out of existence, then you're doing a lot of hunting. Yeah. Uh, so it was that combined with the deforestation uh, of the East Coast, uh, they think both of those things led to the complete extinction. Yeah, because they fed on mast, which is one of my favorite words of all time. Yeah. Mast is like uh, the description of like um, hardwood forest nuts, like acorns and chestnuts and hickory nuts and stuff like that. Yeah. Combined, those things are called mast, right? And I think they fed together as well, right? Yes. Like in groups. Right. So if you start to build roads or you build like the world's first subdivision in 1815 or something like that, and you cut down a bunch of this forest, you fracture this 850 square mile roost, this nest, Yeah. and you have a big problem if you're a passenger pigeon. So that combined with overpredation by humans led to their extinction. So think about this, Chuck. In the 1870s, there were billions of these things. Billions. In 1914, the last one died. So in like 30, 40 years, they went from billions to extinct. Yeah. Like that. 
Yes, and that was Martha, uh, referenced in the article. Um, she was born into uh, captivity, they believe, at Chicago's Brookfield Zoo, mm-hmm. and then donated later to the Cincinnati Cincinnati Zoo. And um, they believe in 1900 that there were these three populations were all that was left. Yeah, the last one ever seen in the wild was in 1899. So they eventually died down and died down. Uh, Martha sadly ended up like trembling in a cage because people would throw sand at her to wake her up and like have her move. So they eventually had to, you know, wall that up. Mm-hmm. And um, she they just bricked her in for her own safety. <laughs> so sad. Uh, so they died out completely, and now she's on display at the Smithsonian until um, October. Yeah, October of this year, uh, which is uh, which is a what, Chuck? Well, a big lesson. <laughs> to mankind on what can happen. That's right. If you hunt too much and if you build too many parking lots. Well, you know, course. there's a there's a big discussion over the the passenger pigeon. Yeah, and bring it back. One of my personal heroes, Charles C. Mann, is caught in the center of this. Oh, is he? Yes, he is. Did not know that. So, you know, he wrote one of my favorite books, 1491. <laughs> and in 1491, he talks about um, there's, there's a, a school of thought about the passenger pigeon. That um, they were actually they their populations exploded pr- just prior to European settlement of North America. Yeah. But after that first Colombian contact. Yeah. And the idea is that if you go and look around a bunch of like Native American sites, pre-Columbian Native American sites, you don't find that many passenger pigeon bones. There's some there. Yeah. But there's not a lot, and there's certainly not enough to suggest that there were billions of these things at the time. So this idea is that after Colombian contact and disease and violence wiped out and spread through North America and wiped out large, like 90% of the Native Americans living there, the passenger pigeon was no longer preyed upon by the Native Americans, and so their population boomed. Yeah. So in a way, all these white settlers who hunted this thing into extinction are kind of off the hook because it was their fault anyway that led to this boom in population. Well, what eh. other scholarship says, like, no, you're ignoring a bunch of sites. That's probably not the case. White European settlers of North America probably did destroy to extinction a a perennially large population of birds in, in North America. You know what they call that? What? A cautionary tale. Oh, Yeah. That sounds familiar. I've heard that before. Uh, so there are some naturalists and scientists and biologists now that they think they can bring back the passenger pigeon. But should we? But should we? And there's a bunch of schools of thought. Uh, there, some conservationists say, well, if we start bringing back extinct species, maybe we won't protect the ones that are near extinction because people, you know, as uh, I guess robustly, because people will say, well, you can bring them back anyway. I don't know about that. Well, I mean, what's what's the problem though? If you think about it, like, what what does it matter to the passenger pigeon? It doesn't know, right? Well, yeah, I mean, there are none. Well, that's the point. Yeah, that a lot of people like, say leave leave it be. That's one thing. Yeah, but also, if you bring back a a passenger pigeon, you are bringing back something whose heritage has been interrupted. Yeah, and therefore, all of that that collective memory that's passed down from one generation to the next has ended already, right? Yeah. So who's going to teach that passenger pigeon how to be a passenger pigeon? Yeah, it may not know. It may be a monster. A monster. It may kill entire families of people. <laughs> well, thank God we have all those tiny pigeon hammers. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
so yeah, there's a lot of schools of thought. Bring it back, it wouldn't know what to do, or it might just pick up and be fine. Who yeah. knows? All right, so we've talked about, we've covered passenger pigeons now. The sad extinction of the passenger pigeon. All those other pigeons. We've talked about cameras on the bellies, messages on backpacks and feet. Those are homing messenger pigeons. Yes. I'm covering, I'm going back over everything here. Okay. Uh, we've covered, I don't even think we mentioned drug traffickers supposedly. Oh no. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, <laughs> carry 10 grams of heroin. Each. Each. And they've been used. So people have been misusing and using and abusing these birds for yeah. millennia. Supposedly, uh, the, the average um, messenger pigeon can carry up to two and a half ounces of something if it's balanced correctly on its backpack. What? Two and a half ounces. That's a lot. So these these things are being treated like royalty if all they have to carry is 10 grams of heroin. Yeah, that's, that's nothing. Yeah. And uh, when they show up, there's frequently just nine grams, you know what I mean? <laughs> So this, <laughs> uh, city pigeons, just your average pigeon that everyone seems to detest. Not everyone. Some people love these things. Yeah. And feed them. Uh, in France and Paris, I believe it's illegal to feed them. Um, because, you know, you go to Trafalgar Square and other places like that and they can be so vast that you can't even walk. So when you feed them, they congregate. Right. And so that's a problem. So yeah. they've outlawed it in a lot of Plus parts of the world. Plus they poop everywhere. They're dirty. They spread disease. It's all very true. Yes. And there have been some cases of uh, legal cases and lawsuits because of pigeons. Uh, there was one in France where there was an American woman there feeding uh, like 25 pounds of feed a day in uh, Paris. And it was already, I think, outlawed in Paris. Yeah. She had been fined 19 times in Nice. So I guess she like was like, I'll go to Paris then yeah. so I can feed the pigeons. She's like the creepy pigeon feeding lady from Mary Poppins. Remember her? No. Feed the birds, tuppence a bag, tuppence, tuppence. <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, she was I super seen that creepy. Since I was like five. Man. A lot of that movie was creepy. Not as creepy as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, I love that one. Which is like one of the most disturbing children's movies no. of all time. This, the bad guy is one of the scariest uh, well, bad true. guys ever. Yeah, he was pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, Gone with the Wind was color, not colorized. Yeah, yeah. We goofed that one. What was colorized and that never was color? Well, Ted Turner colorized some things, but that wasn't one of them. Right, but what was one of them? I don't know. We could go back and look. It just looked phony. That's all I remember. It was probably Citizen Kane. We'll hear about it in an email, huh? Yeah, it wasn't Citizen Kane. <laughs> Um, so this French, I'm sorry, this American woman feeding all these French pigeons. Right. This, uh, other lady is on a park bench. She's ticked off because there's all these pigeons everywhere. She gets up. She tries to kick these things. She tears her stockings and scratches her limbs up, her legs up apparently. Right. And takes this lady to court and they threw out the case or they lost the case because the judge basically said, you don't know how to kick a pigeon without getting hurt. That's your fault. Certainly not the American lady's fault. What Frenchy? about this other lawsuit? Oh, there was, again, in France. The French like to sue people for pigeon-related stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a, a woman who was living in an apartment in a building uh, a couple floors above a store. Yeah, furniture and she, store. And she would feed pigeons. Apparently, the pigeon poop was so bad that the, the store owner was saying it was driving customers away. Yeah, like all over the window, display yeah, windows. Or like on the ground and, and on the doorknob or whatever. It was sure. keeping people from coming to his store. So he sued the, the woman. But the woman's lawyer apparently demonstrated that 
the store owner couldn't prove that the mess came from the pigeons that this lady was feeding. Could have been any pigeon. Yeah, that's a dicey one. Uh, I guess we could finish here with um, a couple of uh, instructionals. Uh, what to do if you find a homing pigeon. Yeah, I have to say <clears throat> my favorite pigeon now is the homing pigeon. Yeah? I think they're great. They don't, they, 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 sure, I'll carry a message if you want, and then I'll be a messenger pigeon, but at heart, I'm just a homing pigeon. I just want to go home. Yeah. I want to hang out and do my heroin. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, here's, here's some advice, um, on what to do if you find a stranded homing pigeon. Um, number one, give it water. That's the number one thing. Yeah. And don't force feed it water like I did when I killed that bird. No, no. Just you don't want to drown it. Put it in a dish. Like a one-inch deep dish. Yeah, and don't overwater it like your yard. <laughs> right. You could just bring the pigeon to my yard and let it drink from my flooded lawn. So let it drink on its own in a one-inch deep container. Um, offer it some food. Say you're hungry. Yeah, and, and you might say, I don't have pigeon food. Yes, you do. If you have rice, unpop popcorn, uh, what else? Buckwheat, barley, canary seed. Yeah. Boom. Any but, of that stuff. Say you're hungry, you're thirsty. How you doing? And then again, just put the stuff out for the pigeon to yeah. enjoy and choose on his or her own. <laughs> That's right. Whether he or she wants to do this. Next thing you do is say, Hi, how's the temperature in for you? You feeling good? You want a scarf? If it's, uh, if it's really cold, if, uh, then maybe let's warm it up a little. If it's really warm, let me cool it down. Yeah, I think they tend to prefer temperate. S- slightly, yeah, on the cooler side of temperate. Yeah. Um, and then they also like to be able to see but you want to keep them in a place that's safe away from like dogs and cats. Obviously. But also in, in, in like a box or something. So a box with a screen over it, a dog kennel with the kennel door closed. Sure. Um, something like that. Yeah. And with maybe some straw, a blanket, something that it can just hang around in. And again, some seed and some water. And what, you just do this for like two days, right? Yeah. After a day or two, you say, how are you feeling? Are you rested? Are you comfortable? Did you get enough food in the bevy? Um, it's time for you to go home. And then you just uh, get your tiny little hammer out. <laughs> no. Don't make me use this. You you just release the homing pigeon, and uh, that little dude or lady um, should find his or her way home. Yeah, like, you can bet on it. And say, hey, thanks for the stay. That was great. Well, that's what the pigeon would say to you? Yeah. If that pigeon says that to you, you go catch it again yeah. and make some money off of it. <laughs> Because most pigeons can't do that. Like Michigan J. Bullfrog. So uh, with, um, again, homing pigeons are my favorite. And if, if you find one and it decides not to leave you, um, you have yourself a homing pigeon as a pet. That's right. Uh, you can also buy them if you're into homing pigeons and raise them yourself. Uh, and when you do, you can train them to do all sorts of neat stuff. But mostly, you can train them to race and fly very long distances. And there's a really neat um, tried and true technique for training homing pigeons. And it's basically all just food-based. Yeah. So they have their nest. It's like training any animal. They have their home base. Uh-huh. And this is where they stay. They spend most of the time. This is where they eat. And you can take them elsewhere, hundreds of miles away if you like. But they, they say you should start off with just like 20 miles, 10 miles, something like that. Sure. And create like another roost somewhere at a friend's house or um, out in a field that you have permission to use. Yeah. You know, make sure you have permission to use the field. <laughs> sure. And you create a roost and you um, set up food there too. Let the pigeon hang out, spend some time there. If you want the pigeon to go back home, 
probably all you have to do is release it from the second roost and it'll want to go back home. Uh-huh. But a surefire way of doing that is to remove its food, right? In that second, second roost. Sounds mean. And it, it, well, it'll be like, well, I want some food. I'm going to fly home and it flies home and it gets to eat its food. Yeah. And you, um, any pigeon roost, any homing pigeon roost has a trap door that the pigeon can get into, but it can't get back out. Yeah. Unless you let it out. But they can, so they can come home and get in whenever they want. So they always have food. Sure. But if you want them to go to the second roost, point B, you just take their food away at home and yeah. they'll say, I know another place to go get food and I'm going to fly to it. Now, once you get that down a few times, you can keep moving that roost further and further out. They're going to find it. Yeah. And if you, uh, say, tell a friend that if they hang out at a second roost, they'll get a special message. You can attach like a little backpack to your homing pigeon <laughs> yeah. and release it, and it'll delight your friend with whatever message you send. This is something I could actually see you doing in, like, retirement. Well, a lot of people do. Did you see that list of famous people who love pigeons, raise pigeons? No, I didn't, but I know Mike Tyson's one of them. Apparently, he's following a big tradition of boxers who raise pigeons. George Foreman, marvelous Marvin Hagler, boxers who raise pigeons. So all these people on this list? Yeah, Chachi from uh, Chachi in Charge. <laughs> he uh, he raised pigeons. Charles in Charge. Terry Bradshaw. Elvis Presley. Who's, who's that? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, Charles Darwin. Barney, apparently, from, from, it says here he's the big purple dinosaur on Sesame Street. That seems a little confused, but I guess Barney raised pigeons. Lee Marvin. You know what we should do is pick out the least likely person to be a pigeon. I think you just said it. Who, Lee Marvin? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, you might be right, actually. You know, the, um, the, I would like to see the Birdman of Alcatraz again. That was a great movie. Jimmy Smith's. Is that yeah. what he's been doing? Yeah, I guess so. Some of these make sense, like Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. That seems like a totally thing that they would have done together. There was a riveting moment at the end of the Pigeons episode where Chuck and Josh just sit there and read <laughs> quietly. Yul Brenner On Mike. Tony Curtis? I think Lee it? Marvin's least likely. You think? Yep. All right. You got anything else? No, I don't think I do. Well, uh, now that you can tell the difference between a homing pigeon, a messenger pigeon, a carrier pigeon, and a passenger pigeon, you should feel pretty good about yourself. Uh, and if you need to brush up on this confusing stuff, you can type the word pigeon into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, and it will bring up who knows what. That's right. Uh, and since I said who knows what, it's time for listener mail. All right, this is, uh, I'm going to call this Kepler Planet follow-up. Um, hey, guys, the one aspect of Kepler planets you did not mention. We can only infer other planets if their orbital plane is aligned with our view of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a star's planet system is off-tilt with respect to us, we won't be able to infer its existence yet. Consider the North Star. Polaris. Uh, it's kind of perpendicular to Name these. dropper. <laughs> it's kind of perpendicular to the solar system. Well, not really, but close enough. If Polaris, uh, Polaris had a planet with intelligent life with Kepler-like technology, they could view our sun, but they wouldn't detect any light variations or wobble. Consider how many planets we found. Now consider how many we can't possibly find given current technology. It's mind-boggling. Just because of the tilt. I mean, they say that supposedly, remember, 40 billion Earth-like planets in the Milky Way alone. Yeah. That's what we suspect. Wow. So even more than that, maybe, says... Jim from the Garden State. I don't know why I said it like Massachusetts. The Garden State. Uh, New Jersey. I don't think it's how they talk in New Jersey. I live there, pal. So that was your Jersey? No, that wasn't my Jersey. Let's hear it. Nah. 
Come on. Nah. Come on. Nah. See, now I'm doing it. <laughs> nice. Thanks, Jim, in New Jersey. Uh, if you want to point out something we should have mentioned but didn't, we always love being corrected. It's one of our things. Uh, we also love hooking ourselves up to car batteries. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 